This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. You can find that on page 1003 in the Bibles in front of you. Again, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we we come, just like this text says, boldly into your presence, confident that you have made a way for us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, this morning as we open your word, As we look at Jesus, I ask, even as we just sang, God, would you you give us eyes to see him as beautiful and glorious? God, in Isaiah 4, you declare there will be a day when the branch of the Lord is seen as beautiful and glorious. And so even in part now, would we be able as your people to taste and see of what one day will be seen by all, that Jesus is above everything. God, as we open your word and we gaze at the life of Jesus, would you give us a spirit of revelation to know him more, to see him more clearly? Would you make our hearts love him more by the truth of your word. God, even even would you do this morning what the writer of Hebrews says just before this passage? Would you move in our midst by your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword? God, would you come and cut to the very depths of our hearts by the power of your word? Would you cause your word to enliven us? And would you cause your word to work effectually in us by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Okay, so if you're new with us, we're uh, walking through a series looking at the person of Jesus. Uh, And this morning, we're going to take some time to focus in on an aspect of Jesus' life that's not often talked about, but one that is 
remarkably important as it relates to who he is and his work that he accomplishes. So let's just dive right in here. Uh, At the heart of the Christian gospel is the reality of Christ Jesus, that in him, God has made a way for sinful humanity to experience the glory and the power of his salvation. And there are many aspects of Christ's person and his work that are really instrumental, important in bringing forth the power of God's saving work. And one of the things that we've stated week in and week out as we've looked at Jesus is you cannot separate the person of Jesus, who he is, from the work of Jesus, right? So uh, one of the realities that I hope that we walk away from week after week after week as we look Jesus full in the face in his word, as his people, I'm praying that what we are overwhelmed with is that the man Jesus Christ, the person of who he is, is glorious and beautiful, like we just sang. That he is worth everything. That who he is in his very person, uh, his glory, his majesty, his splendor, he is majestic and worthy of all of our adoration, all of our lives, all of our affection, all of our thoughts, all of our time, all of our resources. Everything we have is worth laying at his feet just because of who he is. And who he is leads him to the work that he accomplishes. But my prayer and my hope is that as we look at him, our hearts are uh, awakened with love for him. One of the things that we've dug into over the last several weeks is looking at both Jesus's divinity, meaning that he is fully God, and his humanity, that he is fully a man. And these two realities, we, we saw way back when we were looking at Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus is the anointed Messiah and the Son of God. These form the foundation upon which Christ's church is built. The declaration and the rightly ordered profession of our faith is built on the man Jesus Christ. And so we're taking time to look at different aspects of who he is in order that our hearts would be built on the sure foundation. Look at letter C. So this morning we're going to focus in on a particular aspect of the humanity of Jesus. One of the ways that Jesus's life represents something to us about his full humanity. Jesus' humanity is a true one. It is full in every way, meaning he possesses a human body, a human heart, a soul, a human will. Jesus, as we've seen, is the person of the eternal son, the second person of the Godhead, made, uh, made fully human precisely in the fullness of what it means to be human. Letter D, yet there's one profound aspect of Jesus' life that stands apart from every other single human that has ever lived, namely that he is sinless. There's one aspect of Jesus's humanity that is completely unlike ours. Ours is one beset with sin in our very nature and in how we have pursued rebellion against God in disbelief and disobedience. And the scriptures portray that Jesus 
bearing a full humanity, bore it in a way that never sinned. He never, ever uh, walked in a way that was in disbelief of who God is or disobedience to his commandments. So the doctrine of Jesus is perfection. Uh, called his sinlessness, or conversely, we'll talk a lot this morning about Jesus' obedience. His, this doctrine of his perfection as a man is a remarkably important one as it relates to the gospel and our salvation with a lot of implications for us. Look at letter E, that Jesus Christ was sinless throughout his life means that at every moment of his human life, he lived in a willing joyful trust of God the Father in every single thought, every single word, and every single deed. Just push pause on that for a second. Okay. So regularly, we pray this prayer that's from the book of uh, Common Prayer, the Anglican Church, right? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in what? Thought, word, and deed right? By things we've done, by things that we haven't done. Jesus lived his entire human life, never one time in thought, word, or deed, living outside of perfect obedience to the will of the Father. Every single aspect of his life was one lived in willful, joyful, loving submission expressed in full confidence in who God is and full conformity to his desires and his commandments. Now, here's, here's something that I, I want you to just muse on. This has like been, been filling my heart and mind as I've prepped for this over the course of the week. When I say Jesus was sinless, I don't just mean, although it does mean this, that he never committed acts of sin. That does mean that. It's really beautiful and really important. But this also means things like Jesus never gave himself over to anxiety. Jesus never, in the face of uh, hurt feelings, or someone coming against him responded in a way that was outside of absolute, perfect, loving, submitted trust to confidence in who God was expressed in how he related to them. In thought, in expression, in how he ordered his life. Every single moment of his life was lived this way. Now, This is really hard for us to grasp and get our minds around because we've never, ever experienced it. I mean, can you imagine living next to someone who never in thought, word, or deed expressed any inclination towards selfish ambition? Never one time retaliated out of reactive anger Never one time when faced with the uncertainty of tomorrow got bound up in the toilsome worry of anxiety. They would be completely foreign to us, right? That would be completely unnatural to us, how we would experience that. This is 
what it means that Jesus is sinless. So when Hebrews 4, when he lays out for us, the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus has been tested and tempted just like we have, yet without sin, what we have to understand is that at every single moment of Jesus' life, he lived in perfect, loving, joyful, willing submission to the Father. This doctrine should fill our hearts with love and adoration for who Jesus is. Okay, let's look at the biblical witness. Where does the Bible lay this out for us? The Bible portrays a comprehensive portrait of Jesus partaking fully of our human nature, yet without sin. Now, this could be hard for some of us to grapple with because if sin is so much a part of our normative experience, we can't imagine partaking of human nature without partaking of sinfulness. But look at letter B. Sin was not a part of God's creational reality according to his intention and his design. So as God set out to create, he did so in perfect accordance with his glorious intention, his perfect pleasure. Everything was perfectly aligned just as he wanted it. Everything fulfilled his purpose in accordance with the way he designed it. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he made and looked at it. And what does he say? It is very good, meaning it is right in line with what I've created it for. That's what to be good in the, the creation account of Genesis is about. God gets to define what's in line with his intention and his designs. He says it's really good. It is very good. Look at letter C. This is what I want you to catch here. Because of this, sin is not essential to what it means to be a human. Now, the presence of sin is everywhere. You and, all, you and I were all born in sin and we have all pursued sin in accordance with that, every single one of us. But sin is not essential to human nature. It is the presence of sin is evidence that we live subhuman. It's a distortion. This is, it's not natural. The fact that we experience it as natural is unnatural. In accordance with God's desire and his design and his intention, this is not the way that it should be. And for us to just see it because of how pervasive it is, we have to understand that this is not in accordance with God's design. Although all men and women born after the fall are born into sin, save Christ Jesus, Sin is a distortion of a human, our human nature, not fundamental to it. This means that Jesus can assume a true and full human nature outside of sin. Here's, here's in a similar manner, right? Adam, before he sinned, had a true and full human nature, right? He was created in a state of sinlessness. He was given a choice, and we're going to see in a minute, uh, failed, was disobedient, operated in unbelief against the Lord. But sin is a distortion. It is a unnatural uh, reality in, in the created order. Look at letter D. The nature of sin is willful disobedience to God's righteous requirements. As the holy and true creator of all things, God alone gets to define what's good, meaning in accordance with his purposes, 
his designs, his will. He created man to live in trust-filled obedience of his character, expressed by humble submission to his commands in obedience. So I want to just put this on the table. The glory of what it was meant to be made as a human. There's an old, um, old church song, right? To trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than what? Trust and obey, right? That's the, that's the nature of what it means to be human, right? God created us to live in humble belief that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do and his ways are right whether we can see that why or not. And then that is expressed in obedience, right? So to trust and obey. All activity outside of that kind of loving, submitted trust expressed in obedience is what sin is all about. It is a heart of unbelief The author of Hebrews calls it an evil heart of unbelief that expresses itself in acts of disobedience, right? But the scriptures show us that Jesus came as a man under the law, meaning the righteous requirements of living in obedience to God in order to fulfill them in accordance with God's righteousness. This is what Paul's saying in Galatians chapter four when he says, Jesus, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, meaning he's born under the righteous requirements of what it meant to live in accordance with God's desires. Jesus, we see all throughout the scriptures, is seeking to fulfill righteousness and fulfill the law of God. Look at Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He didn't come to get rid of them or to undermine them or to do away with them. He came because the righteous requirement of living in relationship with God through trust and obedience had to be fulfilled because we couldn't do it. So he came so that in his life, at every single moment, he would live as a man fully in trust with God and fully obeying his ways. That's what it says when he means, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to walk it out at every moment, not just its um, outworking, but its internal intention as well. He came to fulfill that. Look at letter G. Peter, he makes several references to Christ's sinlessness in relation to our redemption. Know that you were ransomed from feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, who was like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter then goes on and he says, he committed no sin. There's no sin in this man. The apostle John declares that Jesus was sinless in all things, walking in perfect righteousness so that he might be the one to take away this to take away sin. Look at John, 1 John 1, or 1 John 2. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, to be righteous means that he has to live in 
perfect accordance with God's designs, his desires, his commandments, his ways. That's what it means to be righteous. In every thought, word, deed, at all times, perfectly in line with what God desires. He lived that way. And he goes on in 1 John 3 to say, you know that Jesus appeared to take away sins. In him, there is no sin. This man is sinless, the scriptures tell us. So why does that matter? Like, what's the point, right? Why did, why did Jesus have to come and live an obedient life? Uh, why could he not have just showed up and been the lamb of God, right? The sacrifice. Why did he have to obey? And the scripture invites us to see the reason that Jesus lived a sinless life has to do with the fact that God in his design has determined to deal with all of humanity on the basis of two figures, two representatives. Look at letter A. So many Christians, we don't think about the importance of the obedience of Jesus related to redemption, right? We're quick to glory in the death of Jesus, its effects, uh, the effects of his sacrifice in order to purchase our salvation. And we want to do that, right? We, we glory in the sacrificial death of Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood. We're often quick to go there though, and we don't look at this glorious reality of Jesus's obedience to the Father, that he in every way obeys fully God's word and his ways. We must understand that the glory of Christ's salvation necessitates perfect and complete obedience through his human life. So to understand why, we have to understand a broad scriptural principle of how God is determined to deal with humanity. So from the beginning of the scripture, it's clear that God purposes to deal with humans through two representatives, through figureheads, so to speak. This is what Paul gets out in Romans 5. I'm just going to read this. It's complex. It's intricate. But I want you to just get the big point. God deals with humans on the basis of what man they are in. If you are, all of us are born in Adam. And if we are in Adam, there is a reality about us that we are fallen and broken. Uh, We're dead in our transgressions. We sin and run after the ways of our father, Adam. Or if we are in Christ, we are brought into a new life and the life that he has given is now ours. I want you to just catch that, even if you don't get the complexities of all the argument here. Look at verse 12 in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So there it is, Adam. Adam's sin through whom all sin came into the world. Through this one person. And through that sin, death came. And death spread to all because all who were now born sinned. Right? So what Paul's putting on the table is God designed it so that he would deal with humans on the basis of a representative. Our first representative sinned in disobedience and through his sin, death entered the world and all of us have sinned in likeness with our first father. Therefore, death has spread. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. 
Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinned, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now I want you to hear this. But the free gift in Christ Jesus is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, meaning one man's action, sin came into the world and death spread to all men. And now we're all born in that state and we all sin and we all experience the death that comes from it. If many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Look with me at the top of page three. So in this passage, what we see is that God deals with all humanity through two representatives. Firstly, he deals with all humanity through Adam. Adam was created in the image of God. He had a purpose of living in unbroken communion with him, which is intimacy with God and expressing that through creation, taking God's purposes and expanding them to the ends of the earth. That's dominion. Humans were then meant to be God's representatives on the earth by bringing this, the manifestation of God's character, his purposes, his design to bear on all creation. That's Psalm chapter eight. Look at number three. Adam was given care and creation or care and authority over the garden of God. There was only one commandment given to Adam in the pre-fallen world. Have you ever thought about this? There was only one, one commandment given. And the fascinating reality is God never tells Adam why. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't it have maybe helped Adam, you think, if God would have gone, hey, don't eat from this tree. Here's the reason. Here's my heart and my intention behind that. He doesn't do it. He tells him the consequence of disobedience, but he never tells him why he has the command. Do you know why? Trust and obey. This is all about Adam looking at God and going, you are good and you have my best interest in mind. Whether or not I can see the outcome or why or what that means or what my obedience to this actually situates, what you say is good and so I will trust it and I will obey it. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to like try to fudge the lines and get around it. I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to go, you said it, that's good enough for me. I take you at your word. One commandment in the pre-fallen world. Now, I just want you to put this in your, in your cooker for a minute when we get to Jesus. Adam gets one commandment in a world that is working perfectly. Everything does exactly what it's supposed to. No death, no destruction, no decay. Nothing is warring against that in Adam at all. And he does not succeed. 
he disobeys, right? Everything about the created order points perfectly to God's design and his glory. And Adam has one commandment and he does not trust. He disobeys, demonstrating his distrust of God and his character. Look at number four, Adam and Eve were tested in their trust in God's goodness, his provision, his ability to make good on his word. Look at Genesis three here. The serpent was crafty, right? He knew how to get in and make his case. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman goes and she says, no, he said we can. We can't eat from it or touch it. And the serpent comes back and says, surely this isn't going to happen. That's not going to really happen. The reason, God didn't give you the reason. Let me give you the reason. God doesn't want you to eat it because he is holding out on you. He doesn't want good for you. He doesn't want the consequence of what's going to happen if you eat it. This is all temptation, by the way, right? Boiled down to two realities, two things. Number one, did God really say that, right? That sounds pretty familiar. I don't know if that's what it really means, right? Did God really say, you put in your favorite whatever there? Did God really say that? That's number one. Number two is a sowing of doubt against the character and nature of God. A loving God would never, pop, 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 right? A good, loving God would never hold out on you, would never forbid something from you. What, what he's trying to do is he's trying to keep you and oppress you and press you down in his power. He's not actually for your good. That's all temptation. Comes to them and they sin, just like we all have done. And sinning, Adam brings upon himself in the created order the reality of death, which is separation from God, his life and his purposes. The reality of sin then touches all mankind's relationship with God, meaning we're separate from him. With one another, meaning we're in alienation and strife against each other. And even against creation itself, we're fighting against it. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Then we come to Christ, right? Adam, the one head through whom God deals with humanity. Then we come to Jesus Christ. And this is why it's important that Jesus obeys. Why this matters. Similarly, the actions of Jesus are essential for the purposes of God, for those who are found in him. Just like Adam's disobedience affects all those who are born in him, Christ's obedience affects any and all who are in him through faith. This obedience speaks of the complete and perfect submission of Jesus to the will of God throughout the whole of his life. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus came into the world to accomplish and fulfill the will of God. When Christ came into the world, he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Look at the top of page four. Jesus likewise was tested or tempted in the same manner as Adam and did not succumb through disobedience. 
Now, I want to to put on display the glory of Jesus' obedience, right? Adam's disobedience is one command in a pre-fallen world. Jesus' obedience is full submission to the law of God in a post-fallen world, in a world that is not working the way it's supposed to. It's broken. It's fractured. It's decaying and destroyed. The, the obedience in this world, everything is even fighting against it. And Jesus in this place succeeds right where our first father failed. Look at Matthew chapter four. Jesus it was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, do this. Jesus answers by the word of God as the primary tool to deal with testing and temptation. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil takes up another tactic. He comes to him, shows him the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Here's why. This is what the Bible says, right? Let me give you the good interpretation of the Bible. And Jesus goes, no, that's not the right interpretation. Did God really say? No, this is what's written. And Jesus rebukes him again with the truth of the word. Look at number five. Jesus submits himself fully and perfectly to the will of God, even to the point of suffering and the point of death. Matthew 26, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. He goes and he falls on his face and he prays and he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to just put this again into your heart for a minute. Jesus' obedience is his unwillingness and his unwavering commitment to the commands of God and the will of God in the face of what looks like um, something that would be going in a different direction, right? Like, so he's about to die, right? Jesus has to, in that moment, believe that God will do what he said he would do. He has to believe that. He's tested in that moment and tempted in that moment with the same kind of reality. Is God going to be good here? And Jesus succeeds and steps forward in obedience. Philippians 2, as we saw last week, gives this beautiful portrait of Jesus's self-emptying reality of what it means for him to come and live as a man. But verse eight says he was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews five, right after this passage that we're looking at this morning, he offers up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one that was able to save him. And he was heard because he was reverent. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So through obedience, Jesus is qualified to offer himself as a sacrifice for salvation and all who, to all those who are in him. 
Okay, so this is the reality. This really matters. Why does it matter? What are the implications? I want to just give you a handful with the time we have left. Why does it matter that we look at Jesus' sinlessness and actually like delight in it, meditate on it, uh, consider it, uh, see it as beautiful? That it's not just something we go, oh yeah, Jesus is sinless, that's cool. Like, of course he is. He's God, uh, he doesn't sin, and, and we move on. Like, this matters for us, and I want to show why. First, it matters because Jesus' sinlessness qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice. Number one, the remarkable implication of Christ's perfect obedience is that he is now qualified to be the sinless sacrifice that brings salvation for sin. In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, whose blood was offered as a covering for the sins of the people, had to be without spot or without blemish. This was a type of the perfect, perfect uh, nature that would be required for the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Jesus then, in his sinless obedience to the Father, this is necessary for him to be the perfect Lamb of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. When Jesus appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, then though the, uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Four, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons sanctify you for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author of Hebrews is saying, I want you to not miss something. Jesus' perfect obedience in the face of temptation, in the face of testing, the fact that he pressed through in loving trust to his father and never wavered in disobedience one time, what that does is make him the perfect uh, lamb of God without blemish that can offer you eternal redemption and cleanse your conscience from defilement and dead works. This is good news. The obedience of Jesus makes him qualified to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we come and delight in the shed blood of Jesus, the effectiveness of the shed blood of Jesus hinges on the fact that he offered it up without blemish to his father. That never one time did he waver in disbelief or disobedience to the will of the father so he can fully and perfectly offer himself as the sacrifice for salvation. Praise the Lord. Look at the top of page five. The second reason is what I call the great exchange. The writers of the New Testament demonstrate for us that Christ's righteous obedience to the Father is given to those who are in him in exchange for washing away of their sins. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. This verse should stun you said stun you for our sake 
God the Father, he, made Jesus, him, to be sin, who knew no sin. So he took the one who knew no sin, no time in his life, in thought, word, or deed, did he ever transgress disobeying or disbelieving the will of the Father. He took the one with no sin and made him sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange you could ever imagine. He took the one that was sinless and perfect, undefiled, without blemish, and he put the sins of the world upon him and made him to be sin so that if you are in him, you are made his righteousness, his obedience, his perfect submission in joyful trust to the way of his father is accounted as yours. He says, come in faith. I will take your sin and I will give you my righteousness. I will exchange it. For those who are in Christ Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us as a gift through faith. That's just a fancy way of saying It's taken and put into your account. That's what imputation means. So forgiveness or salvation is not just like a ledger that you had a debt and then you got cleared to this point and your debt was removed. That's part of it. But what these passages show us is that Christ's obedience and righteousness get put into your account. They get taken and infused into yours. You now stand before God as the righteousness of Christ Jesus, clothed in his righteousness of no work of your own. Just because of an exchange, you by faith say, would you take my sin, would you take my shame, my condemnation, the wrath that was due me, would you take it by your perfect sacrifice? And in return, he gives you the righteousness of his obedient life. Look at that in Romans chapter eight. This is what God has done. God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in his own flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You are given God's righteousness because of Christ Jesus The great exchange. Look at number three, letter C here. The third reason this matters or implication from this is the joy of holiness. Oh, this is just delighting my heart this week. Jesus is the most blessed man who has ever lived. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the happiest man that's ever existed? He is the most satisfied, fulfilled, joy-filled 
person that's ever existed in all of human history, right? Never one time outside of the beautiful reality of God's desire. He's the most blessed man that ever lived. And this is not in spite of walking in obedience to God's will, but precisely because of it. Precisely because he is obedient, he lives in complete joy. He not only gives us a perfect portrait of what God is like, but also gives us a perfect portrait of what humans are meant to be. Look at Psalm 45 here. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, meaning you're in line with God's desires, walking in his ways. What's the result of that? Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than anybody. This is unbelievable. How many of us are so tempted to see obedience and holiness as these boundaries around us that God puts to keep us from happiness? Jesus is this glorious portrait that to be holy is to be immensely, infinitely, ultimately blessed, ultimately full of joy, ultimately gladdened. Jesus is the most blessed man. We can understand that pursuing obedience to God in faith is the precise way that we will experience the fullest, most complete joy and satisfaction throughout all eternity. All right, the last one. I'm gonna take just a couple more minutes here. A sympathetic high priest. One of the most powerful implications that the writer of Hebrews draws from Christ's active and perfect obedience is the reality that he is now a sympathetic high priest on our behalf. I just want to read that. Look at this here. Uh, Verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this, this means that Jesus understands what it means to be tempted and it means to be tested in real ways. Yet he never one time succumbed to such temptation in unbelief and disobedience. Now I have to stop here for a minute and kind of give a a contemporary narration of where we're at in our moment. And because I think this would be really easy for us to misinterpret what it means that Jesus is sympathetic to us. Um, In our moment, one of the things that's held as a pretty high value is that we all create these like identities would be the only way I could say it, right? About who we are and our experience, right? Like we take our experience and we put it up as like this highest form of who we are. And from that, we derive all this meaning about the world that's filtered through that. And what we have come to believe is for someone to sympathize with me, or you could maybe say it better as like empathize with me, they have to share my experience or validate my experience or live fully into it. That is not what's going on here, okay? 
Jesus being tested and tempted in every way like we are does not mean that he's had every experience that every one of us has had, right? He, he never walked in the 21st century. Like, he, he didn't do that. He was never a stay-at-home mom, right? Like, we have to understand this a little different. What it means is this. Jesus knows just what it's like to be living in the world and everything around is telling you, don't put your trust in the Lord. Your experience, your difficulties, your sensory inputs, your circumstances, they should lead you in a different direction. Jesus knows that moment and he never succumbed to it. That's what it means that he's sympathetic with you. So it means that he knows just what it's like to be uncertain about something and have to submit yourself to trust God, that his word transcends your experience. And he did it every single time. Look at number three here. For Jesus to be a sympathetic high priest does not mean that he comes and validates our experience or more importantly, that he comes and validates our interpretation of our experience. What it means is that he understands what it means to live in a world that is broken and fallen. He knows what it means to be confronted with the temptation to doubt God's word, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his purpose. It even means that he understands what it, it, that it means to be tempted to draw back in the face of those realities. That's the narrative of Hebrews, right? Let me, in Hebrews, what's happening is this group of people is experiencing real hardship, real difficulty. It seems like God is not coming through on his promises and they're being tempted to draw back and go a different way. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. Jesus was tested just like you were. Jesus was tested in that moment and he never one time sinned. Because of that, you can come to him and he will give you all the grace, all the help, all the mercy that you need right in that moment to not draw back, to not succumb to it, to not turn and disbelieve. That's the whole thing where he says, if you hear God's word today, don't harden your heart in unbelief. Come to him and experience never one time Number four, did Jesus harden his heart in unbelief? Rather, he fully and perfectly submitted himself in faith to the God who is and who is a rewarder of those who seek him. This means that we can come to him in our time of need and trouble, not looking for him to validate our experiences or our interpretation of them, but rather to receive his grace, which is his sustaining power, and his mercy, which is his abundant and tender care for us, right there in our time of temptation and need. Read that again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted like we are, yet without sin. What does that mean? Let us, brothers and sisters, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we, in a moment, 
where we're struggling to make sense of God's goodness and what it means to trust and obey, right in that moment, what the author of Hebrews is saying is you have help. You have help. Come to the throne of grace, full of confidence that your high priest faced that situation and did not waver. He did not waver in unbelief. He did not draw back. He did not uh, distrust God or disobey his word. Therefore, he can give you and dispense to you all the help you need by his spirit right there, right now. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? As the team comes forward, we're just going to take a moment to respond to the Lord. It's just before we, uh, before we go into song and before we come to the table, let's just take a moment right where we are just to present ourselves to the Lord. Say, Lord, here I am. God, would you move in and among us by your word? God, we come to you right now with boldness and confidence. to find help in our time of trouble. God, would you come and give us spirit of revelation that we might see Jesus as beautiful and glorious. God, would you let the truths of this reality wash us? Let it stir our affections. Let it heal places of doubt and brokenness in us. God, would you, would you awaken gratitude in us? Gratitude for your unwavering obedience. That you are the perfect lamb of God without blemish. And that in your life and in your death, we receive your righteousness. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he passed it and he said, take this and drink it. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. We're going to come this morning and rejoice in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb, the one without blemish or spot, the one who has offered himself without blemish to God that we might, through faith in him, have eternal redemption. If you believe in that, you're a Christian and we want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. This meal is open to any and all who put their faith in Jesus. The way we take at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off and dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. Uh, We'll have servers up front in the middle. 
up in the sides of the balcony and a gluten-free station down here to my right, to your left. We're gonna respond through singing. We're gonna respond through coming to the table. And we're gonna respond, if you need prayer this morning, we have ministers across the room that would love to stand with you and pray for you, to ask God to move in your life. Uh, those are the ways that we're gonna respond together this morning. I'm just gonna pray for us one more time and uh, we'll come and receive when we're ready. So Lord, would you come and feed us by faith as we come and partake of the table of the Lord this morning. God, we rejoice in the Lamb of God. God, we say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For by your blood, you have purchased for God from every tongue, tribe, people, nation made us king, a kingdom of priests to our God and Father. So we come and remember that this morning. Would you exalt yourself even in our remembrance of you, God? Come and be with us. Move among us in Jesus' name. Amen.